When you were a new believer, did you ever have a uh, something that you did, something really dumb that you did when you first became a believer? Uh, I'm, just, I'm just using the word dumb. Something that something that was foolish, something that was embarrassing, something that you, that you look back on and you're like, man, that just makes me cringe. Did you, do you have one of those things? Maybe it was a belief that you held. Maybe it was something you said, some advice you gave someone when you were a new believer. Maybe it was, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what it was, something that was, that was silly that, that, you, that you look back on and you cringe upon based on you know, where you are now in your walk with Jesus. Well, I do, for sure. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you what that is right now. When I was about six or seven, I accepted Jesus into my heart, uh, or Jesus found me, whatever your theology tells you. Uh, I, I, I met with Jesus. Okay? I, I accepted Jesus, and we had a relationship. And that was when I was about six or seven. And when I was about seven or eight, uh, I felt the, uh, the pull or the desire to get baptized. And I told my parents, you know, I, I want to get baptized. And they asked me all the, you know, all the typical questions. Why do you want to get baptized? And I was like, you know, I knew all the church answers. Well, Jesus and, you know, things. And like, I want to get baptized because this is what I'm supposed to do. It's like, I, you know. But what I didn't tell them was the real reason I wanted to get baptized. You see, I went to uh, Forest Park Baptist Church at this time, which is the bigger, the bigger church out there by range, 7th Range Line. And uh, the pastor was, it was John Swatley. He's still the pastor out there, I believe. And, uh, and, and, and whenever you would baptize someone, you see, they had this big, clear, like, tank. Uh, like, this big, clear, uh, like, uh, uh, I'm not going to call it a dunk tank. I don't know why I want to say dunk tank. <laughs> a baptistry. Wow. I don't know why I want to say dunk you know, they would hit the ball at the clown and you'd fall in the water. No. Like they, have, they had this big, clear baptistry. You could see the water. So every time they baptized somebody in it, you could see them standing and then go under. It was really cool. But whenever I saw that as a kid, I was like, man, how cool is that? They've got like a swimming pool in their church. And I was one of these kids, okay, that like was at the swimming pool like every single day. I love to swim. And so when I saw people getting baptized there in church, I was like, man, I want me some of that. And so I, I told, asked my parents if I could get baptized. And, you know, I went up there and, you know, you know, John baptized. He's still there. You can ask him this story. I don't know if he remembers it or not, but he's still there. So, like, he, John baptizes me. He asked me all the questions. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yes, I love Jesus. Okay, here we go. And, you know, he dumps me. I'm like, I get it over with. He dumps me. I come back up. And I'm like, all right, here we go. And he, like, he, like, you know, he goes to, like, you know, kind of, you know, usher me off so the next person come in. And I just start, you know, doing a frog swim, like, like through the water. And, I, and I'm swimming, like, circles around John. Like, everybody in the whole church can see it. They're all dying laughing. And my mom is over on the side of the steps. She's like, you girl, it's right now. That's disrespectful. And she's like yelling at me. And I'm just like, that is awesome. And so like, that, that is my, like, that is, that is my baptism. That is how my baptism went. And uh, for years, I wondered, like, man, did that even count? Like, was that a, like, was that a real baptism? But, you know, I, it, fortunately, I had a pastor later in my life tell me, you know, like, we come to Jesus not understanding a lot of things. And fortunately, like, like he, you know, changes our heart and he brings us closer to him. And your baptism, like, it counted. Like, that was still your ceremony with Jesus. But what a, what a great, also, definition of my relationship with Jesus. Just like, yeah, I want to do this and also go swimming like that. But anyway. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever had something like that. Maybe it was something that you believed when you were first uh, a believer. Maybe it was something that uh, just kind of like intersected with your old life and you intersected with your, with your new life that kind of just makes you cringe. Like, man, what, what was I thinking with that? I, I hope that you have things like that because that also means that your relationship with Jesus is progressing and changing and you're growing uh, closer to him. But today we're going to talk about somebody uh, that, that had a, an experience very similar to this. Uh, he, was a, he was a new believer and he did something very dumb. And uh, that's going to that's gonna be what we talk about. Uh, this morning. Today, uh, we are, we're studying out of the book of Acts. Uh, if you have uh, not been with us, we've been going all summer through a series in the book of Acts uh, with our uh, senior pastor, Scott. And I wanted to help continue that series this morning. And uh, if you want to turn and follow along with me, which I would encourage you to do, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 
8 this morning. Um, last week, Scott told the story of a man named Stephen. Uh, and Stephen was the very first martyr. He was the first martyr, first person ever to, first Christian, I should say, ever to be martyred for their faith. Uh, he, you know, essentially, well, what Stephen was, Stephen was the first Christian ever martyred. And he, and he was basically healing and serving people uh, as he'd been commanded to do and as been given, had been given to him as a responsibility by the church. He was healing and serving people. He was, he was performing their miracles and wonders. And he was also just teaching about Jesus. And uh, because of the way that he was teaching about Jesus, it attracted the uh, attention of the religious leaders of his day who were not okay with some of the things that he was saying. So he was brought before those religious leaders. They asked him if he meant what he said. And he proceeded to lay the proverbial smackdown on everybody involved. And, and, and because of that, uh, he was stoned to death. And when I say stoned to death, like, I feel like that's one of those terms that like, you know, we hear it, like, on, we like, have it on the flannel board. Like, right and he was stoned to death. Like, like, do you really, like, do you realize... People threw rocks at this man until he died. Like, like, how long would that take? How painful must that have been? And yet Stephen still had the strength and the will and the faith to, in the midst of that, right, right before his dying moment, say, God, please forgive the people that are killing me, essentially. They're throwing rocks at me right now until I die. Please forgive those people that are stoning me to death. They don't understand what they're doing, just as Jesus did. Stephen is one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, and I, I really love Scott's sermon about Stephen last week. So last week, Scott... Preached about sermon and, uh, and, and, and or Stephen, sorry, preached about Stephen, preached a sermon about Stephen, wow. So last week Scott preached about sermon, and this was a big deal. What happened to Stephen was a, was a, it was a huge deal in the church. It was, it was a very big deal because, you see, what happened was, uh, after, the, 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 after Stephen was killed and, and, uh, and Saul oversaw that killing, a huge persecution breaks out against the church. Uh, it, it, that's that very day, in fact. Uh, like, like Jewish people are going out and attacking Christians. Christians are being thrown into jail. Uh, some of them are probably being killed. And, and, and the church is going through a giant persecution. And what's, what's amazing is that Scripture says, actually, in uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 1, it says, uh, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What's so amazing to me about uh, this, this part that says that they were scattered throughout Judea, Judea and Samaria is because it fulfills exactly what Jesus had commanded them to do earlier, right, right before he left, right before he ascended. Uh, he said, you know, you'll, you'll be my witnesses throughout all Jerusalem, okay? Like right like right close by. You'll be in, in, in Judea, which is kind of, you know, in your circle of influence, and also in Samaria, which is way outside your circle of influence, into all the world. And, and it says right here, they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's super, super interesting to me that, that, that that's the way that this happened. That's the way the church first spread was through this persecution breaking out against the church right after Stephen was killed. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to gather from that this morning. No matter what happens, God is still on his throne. He still has a plan and he's still going to accomplish it. The things that he wants to get done, he's going to get them done, no matter what. In fact, he may even do it in the hardest way possible so that when you look back on it, you're not able to say, man, I'm so glad that I was able to do that. You say, there's no other way that this could have been done apart from God. Like, there's no other way that this was even possible apart from God. Like, a giant persecution breaks out against the church, and it's the catalyst that spreads the gospel all throughout the world. That's, that's, that's just crazy. That doesn't make sense. That's how you crush movements, not start movements. And, and yet God takes this persecution, and he uses it to spread his gospel all throughout Judea and Samaria. Uh, in one of the church's weakest moments, God begins to spread his gospel throughout everywhere. You see, Christians, we have a hard time shutting up about Jesus. 
And so even when we're under persecution, even when we're being pushed, uh, even when we're being spread throughout all over the place, placed out of our comfort zone, we still have a hard time shutting up about Jesus. Once he changes your heart, once you have a lifetime, life-changing meetup with Jesus, you can't help but tell folks about the hope that you have. You can't help but tell folks about what God's done in your life for you and through you and in you and in the change that's happened. You can't help but tell folks about that, even when you're under persecution, even when there's a possibility you could be killed or put in prison or your family might reject you. You cannot stop talking about it. So even when the church was scattered, the gospel continued to spread. Among these folks was a guy named Philip. And, uh, and Philip, this chapter 8 in Acts is really all about Philip. It's, it's, it's Philip's story. And, uh, and I love Philip. He's, he's, a, really, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, he's not around for like a long time uh, in, in, in Acts. He kind of is, but he's, you know, he just gets like these stories just here and there. And they're like huge. Like you read about Philip, like, whoa, like, where did that come from? Like, that's crazy. I, I love Philip. And actually, Philip was one of the uh, six or seven guys that were chosen by the church to, to perform the job that Stephen was performing. And so Philip kind of took over Stephen's spot after Stephen was killed. And uh, we start hearing about Philip actually right uh, here in chapter 8. Uh, it says, those who have been, right here in chapter 8, verse 4, sorry. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Uh, I, I love Philip. Philip is, is, is really interesting. Like he just kind of goes, doop, doop, walks in this place. Oh, there's evil spirits coming out, and the cripples are being healed. And, like, and Philip's like, like, wherever Philip goes, there's like great joy in the city because God's work is being done, and there's miracles being performed. It's insane. Uh, and I, I love all the things that Philip is doing here in chapter 8. He's doing miraculous signs. People are paying attention to what he's teaching. He's doing all these things. You know, this is all the typical stuff that Scott and Phil and I do in the office week to week. You know, he's casting out demons and healing paralytics and, and, you know, all these different things. And, you know, it's just, it's just an average day at the office for, uh, for us here at Wellspring as well. Um, Philip, he's doing amazing things, but there was someone else in the city who was also doing amazing things. There was someone else in, in, uh, in Samaria who was also doing amazing things and getting a lot of recognition, recognition for it. All right, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Now there was, uh, for some time, a man named Simon who had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and that all the people, and all the people both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, uh, sorry, I lost my spot. This man is the divine power known as the great power. So there's this guy named Simon. Your translation uh, might even call him Simon Maggots, and that's what I, uh, that's, that's what I like to call him. Not Simon Maggots, Simon Maggots. Uh, I, I really like knowing that because it, it describes him very well. Mag, maggots means a mage or a magician. Uh, he's, he's a sorcerer, essentially. He's, he's a magician. He's, uh, we don't know exactly where that comes from, but chances are, if you're doing sorcery, it's not coming from someplace good. We don't know if his, if his sorcery was, was just straight-up uh, astrology. We don't know if his sorcery was uh, just kind of tricks uh, here and there to impress people, or if his sorcery was, was demonic in nature. We, we don't know for sure. But we know that he was a sorcerer who was doing works that were amazing to people of Samaria. And, and uh, people were amazed by his works, and apparently he's pretty famous already at this point when we hear about him. In fact, he was probably a very wealthy man who worked for a ruler in the area. Uh, when you hear about the Magi, in, uh, you know, in the story of Jesus, the ones who, who read the stars and kind of figured out what was happening with Jesus, that's, that's similar to what, uh, to what Simon Magus uh, was. And so some people think that he was an astrologer who told signs and wonders 
through SARS. But he was doing a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of work that, that seemed amazing to people. In fact, the NIV, like like we just read, it says that, that people thought he had divine power, uh, known as the Great Power. They're basically saying that Simon is is God's chief chief representative. They they basically see Simon as the guy who sort of uh, divines God's will to the people. They sort of see him as God's chief representative, and he's claiming, he's also kind of claiming those things for himself as well. He, he, uh, it says, um, says right here, they followed him because he amazed them for a long time with his magic, and when, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news uh, of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Simon's doing these amazing things, but uh, it should tell you something that this, this, this sorcerer, okay, he, what, what's about to happen to him, what he's about to see. So let's jump down to verse 12. Uh, but when they believed Philip as he preached uh, the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And that should tell you something. When you're a guy who like thinks that you're the hottest thing smoking— and uh, who also kind of, uh, you know, is, it claims, like, yeah, I am, I am, like, God's divine representative, okay? Like, I am the guy that, that divinates God's will and, and God, you know, what God wants to the people. Like, when you claim to be that person and then you see the works of Philip and you say, wow, that's legit. Like, and you want to be a part of that and you, you want to, uh, to then be, like, believe in Christ and be baptized. Like, that says something about what Philip was doing and, and uh, how genuine what, uh, what the work he was doing was. Um, but there's something else I want to say. So the folks in Samaria, they send word back to the apostles. And we're going to read about that right here in verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> this is weird, okay? This passage is weird, and it's caused so much debate all throughout, uh, all throughout history and all throughout uh, Christianity. We're going to talk about some of that weirdness here in just a second. But first of all, I want us to take a look at what exactly is happening here. Because it's easy just to read through Scripture, especially when I talk as fast as I do, and to miss uh, certain, uh, certain things or certain just elements of what's happening in the story. So, where... Are they right now? Someone tell me. I'm used to teaching my, my, my high schoolers or junior highers who answer me back. So where is all this taking place right now? Samaria. Samaria. Who lives in Samaria? Samaria. The Samaritans. Okay. Do, do Jewish people like the Samaritans? No. no, they do not like the Samaritans. Jewish people don't like the Samaritans. They, they, in fact, they're very, like, really racially prejudiced against the Samaritans. There's a, that's why Jesus used the story of the good Samaritan, okay, the one who was like rejected by the Jewish people is the one that comes and helps the guy who beat up while all the religious leaders pass uh, pass the guy who got beat up, the guy who got hurt. They pass him by, and it's the Samaritan that comes and helps him. That's why that story was so controversial and so crazy in that culture, because that's the guy he like that, that, that they couldn't stand. That's the one that's on the outside of their faith, and yet that's the one that comes and helps them. And that's that's the people of this of this place. It's the people of Samaria, the Samaritans, and it's crazy. Because that is where the gospel is spreading. It's spreading to Samaria. Um, and uh, what's, what's, what's also crazy is that they send, like they, they have to call Peter and John in for some reason. Uh, these people, they accept Jesus, and they're baptized. And you see the apostles had actually stayed in Jerusalem when the, when the uh, persecution broke out. Everybody else had scattered, but the apostles, like the original uh, 12, well, 11 with one new guy, had all stayed in uh, Jerusalem, and everybody else had scattered. And so they send word back to the apostles, hey, 
People in Samaria are becoming Christians. And uh, we don't know what to do. They're Samaritans. We don't know what to do. And so what happens is Peter and John, they come back. Um, I want you to, oh, this is what I pulled from this story. This is the big thing I pulled from this story. And God does not just want you in your Jerusalem, okay? Whatever your Jerusalem is in your life, that's like your immediate family and like your close friends. He doesn't just want you in your Judea, which is kind of like your neighborhood, your circle of influence, the people you work with, all right? Like he wants you in your Samaria. He wants you to be doing work in your Samaria. I don't know what your Samaria is. I, I have no idea what your Samaria is. What is your personal Samaria? Who are the people that gross you out? Who are the people that you hold a prejudice against that maybe even that you don't you don't want to talk about, like because it's just a private thing that you're just like, ah, those type of people, that's just not my thing. I don't like to interact with that type of sin. I don't like to interact with that type of culture. I don't like to interact with people of this color. I don't know what what is it for you? I don't know what it is. You don't have to raise your hand and tell me I'm racist. You don't have to say, okay, I'm not, I'm not asking you to raise your hand and tell me. But what is that for you? What, what is your Samaria? What is your personal Samaria? We've all got it. Maybe it's maybe it's something as simple as socially awkward people. I don't know. Maybe it's something as big as an entire race or an entire, entire people group. What is your Samaria? Because Jesus wants you there too. Jesus calls you not just to your Jerusalem and your Judea, but he calls you to your Samaria. Where's the place you're not reaching into? Who's the people group you're not touching? God wants you there. He wants you to, 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 to put your hands in it. And we're going to read about that more here in just a second. Um, actually, we did just read about it. Sorry about that. But this passage, what we just read, has caused a lot of debate. I just want to say that. Because here's what happens. Um, they, they lay their hands, okay, on these guys, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Because even though they've been believed and been baptized, they had not gotten the Holy Spirit. Okay, we've got the Baptists covered, we've got the Christian church people covered, and they still haven't got the Holy Spirit, and no one understands why, okay? And, and yet, they don't get the Holy Spirit until Peter and John show up, lay hands on these people, and pray over them. And that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. And for years, this has caused so much debate. Why? Why, why not? This, doesn't, this, this breaks all of our rules. Like, we thought that this was, that it worked like A, B, and C. It's saying the sinner's prayer, and you need to get a bad child, and you need to get the Holy Spirit. And that's not how it worked. It didn't happen that way. And, and no one could quite figure out why. And so, I seriously, I couldn't figure out why either. I was like, what the heck? I had to preach on this? And so I did a ton of research this week, honestly. I looked, I looked through commentaries. I looked through all kinds of stuff trying to figure out why this is. And this is what I come to. This is, this is the point that I've arrived at. You see, Peter and John show up, and, and, and they affirm these people as believers. They show up to Samaria, okay? Two Jewish men, as Jewish as you can get, show up to Samaria, and they affirm these believers. And God says, you know what? If you want these people to have the Holy Spirit, if you want these people to be part of your kingdom, your family, you're going to have to put your hands in there. You're going to have to lay your hands on them. You're going to have to get your hands dirty. You're going to have to be, like, you're, they're going to have to be part of your family. You are going to have to impart this upon them. Like, I don't know why God gave them that responsibility. I think we can kind of fill in the blanks as to why. But, man, God made them go to this place they considered unclean and touch what was unclean. Get their hands in the mess. Get dirty. So what's your personal Samaria? Where is your personal Samaria? Because you're not called just to pray for those people. You're not called just to be nice to those people. You're called to get your hands in and get dirty. Where's the people you don't want to interact with? Where are you not reaching into? Side note, okay? You know what's really easy? I'm not going to like go into specifics, but you know what's really, really easy? Condemning a sin that you have no struggle with. Condemning a sin you've never had to interact with or touch, you've never been tempted by, it's really easy to, to just jump on that and attack it and go after someone who does struggle with that because you've never even imagined what that's like. And based on my Facebook feed the last couple of days, it's even easier than I thought. It's really, really easy to attack sin you don't struggle with. 
Man, digging in, digging with, with the love of Christ through that sin and through that mess that you don't understand, that is the work of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. That's what God did. Sin that he, he didn't understand, he, he didn't have part of it, he'd never taken part of that, he hadn't been tempted by it, and yet God came to earth and was tempted by it. God came to earth and interacted with it. God came to earth and got his hands dirty. That's the work of Jesus. The reality of ministering to those who need and want the hope of Jesus and don't even realize it is, it is so messy, it is so challenging, it is so hard to minister to those people that don't realize they don't need it. It's, it's, it's often heartbreaking, and yet it's desperately, desperately needed. If we don't do it, I don't know who else is going to do it. The harvest is so plentiful, and yet the workers are so few. The harvest is right there in our own backyards, across the street, next door, at our work, and yet, and yet the workers are so stinking few. It's just broken my heart the last couple of days. Man, I, and, and I'm guilty of this too because, man, last night I, I'm sitting in my house and I'm sitting on my floor. I'm just improvising this. I'm sitting in my house and I'm sitting on my floor and I'm playing video games and I'm just like, oh, I get to chill out the night before I preach. I just want to relax. Like, I just want to you know, kind of clear my mind. And then it, and, and I want to brag on my wife for a second. I come with my wife and she brings with her her friend who struggles. I mean, struggles. With same-sex attraction. And she brings him in, and I, I'm like, freaking dang it. Like, I, I just want to relax. I just want to play video games. And yet now I have to go do my job and be a pastor and talk to this person and, like, sit here and counsel this person. And all I wanted was a night to myself. And I was so obsessed with my own comfort. I was so obsessed with where I was and where I wanted to be that this person who struggles, man, I mean, fights. I, I, I almost just, like, turned my back when I walked out of the room. I was like, oh, well, they, she can handle this. This isn't my thing. And yet, he, he sits there across the room and says to me, like, because I don't want to deal with problems like what he said. He said to me, I don't know if I can give this up because I don't know if I can be alone for the rest of my life. Man, I've never had to even think about that. I've never had to even consider that for myself. And, and, and yet, that is his reality. That is where he's at in his relationship with Jesus. It's like, this or be alone for the rest of my life. And man, I just, I, my heart went out to this guy. My heart broke for this guy. And, and yet, like, all it was, it's like stark contrast to everything else I've seen this week about this issue. It was just like, wow, like, this, this is the reality of this struggle. This is the reality of this sin nature. This is the reality of what's happening uh, in, in this people group, and especially with those who have a relationship with Jesus and still struggle with this struggle, man. And yet, and yet we don't want to, that's our Samaria. We don't want to touch that. We don't want to take part. We don't, we don't want to get near that. We just want to reject that. We just want to pretend it doesn't exist and it's not there. All right. I'm getting back on track now. I'm sorry. Chapter 8, uh, verse 18. After Peter and John come and place their hands in, in these uh, Samaritans, receive the Holy Spirit, um, here's what happens. Our, our good old buddy, Simon Magus, he comes back in the picture. Here's what happens with Simon. Simon, uh, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, Simon, like, man, dude, this is like, whenever I talked earlier, this is Simon swimming in the baptistry, okay? Maybe a little, like, worse than that, like, uh, okay, but, like, this is his, 
this is his moment where he's a new believer. He doesn't know where he's at yet. And like I said, we okay, we don't know if Simon's conversion all right, was, was legitimate or not. That's not for us to decide. Um, I want to give Simon the benefit of the doubt and say it probably was. Uh, but we don't know for sure. But in this moment, Simon has the wrong motivation. Simon wants, and he wants something good. He wants what the apostles have, but he wants it for the wrong reasons. He wants it so that he can accumulate wealth. Because as you know, like, he already was was a magus. He already had, uh, he already was a magician, a sorcerer. He'd already accumulated wealth and power and renown from his abilities and from the powers that he had demonstrated. And so now he sees this new one, this new power, and he wants it for himself so he can continue to, uh, to make money off of it. So he says, hey guys, I got money. You got the ability to part the Holy Spirit. Let's, you know, let's work out, let's work something out here. Let's, let's, we can make this work. And, uh, and like Simon, I, you know, I, we look at this and, and, and this is one of those things in scripture you look at and you're like, wow, what an idiot. Simon Magus, how stupid can you be? Like, how many, like, raise your hand in here if you've ever struggled with wanting to buy the ability to lay on hands and impart the Holy Spirit. Who struggled with that? Oh, nobody. Like, nobody struggled with that. Like, it's one of those things we look at and we're just like, oh, what? I don't, like, I don't, that's, that's so out far outside of my realm of, like, of, like, interacting with Jesus. I don't really understand why someone would struggle with that. But don't raise your hands for these ones, okay, please? <laughs> don't raise your hands, please. But how many of us have, have ever tried to buy renown within the church? How many of us have ever, have ever leveraged our giving to try and get our way in the church? How many of us have ever manipulated a relationship with a pastor or someone influential in church leadership in order to get what we want? How many of us have built up a faction of people on our side to change things in our favor? How many of us have... have uh, have gossiped and complained about church leadership and members in order to win favor or agreement or renown? How many of us have ever tried to change the church to fit our preferences, our wants, our desires, our comfort zones? I would say probably all of us on, on some level, on some level or another. You see, it's easy to look at Simon trying to use the Holy Spirit for renown and scoff, but we've done it week in and week out as part of the church body. Why is the church so broken? Why do so many t- churches rip themselves to shreds? Because the church is absolutely packed wall to wall to wall to wall with Simon Magazines, okay? We live in a consumer-driven culture that's taught us the 11th commandment is the customer is always right. <laughs> I should get what I want. I put my time in. I pay my tithe. I've served here and baked here. I've moved more tables and chairs than I can count. I was an elder for a season. I, I, I helped with this ministry. I helped lead this mission trip. Heck, I'm a, I'm a founding member. The church owes me a little of what I want. The church owes me what I want. And we can laugh all day about how selfish and silly Simon Magus is wanting to buy the Holy Spirit, but not a single one of us is probably innocent of this sin on, on, some, on some level or another. What would the American church look like if it were driven by the needs of those outside its walls and the desires of Jesus Christ rather than our own needs and desires? How would Wellspring Church specifically look different? Would it look different if we were driven by the needs of those outside our walls and the desires of Jesus rather than our own? Let's see how Peter responds to Simon Magus. This is what's so funny. He asked the wrong guy. Like he, He walks up to Peter. Like, loud mouth Peter and says, hey, I want to buy the Holy Spirit. And then Peter's like, <laughs> like okay, so we're going we're gonna to take a look at how Peter responds to Simon Magus. Uh, verse 20, chapter 8, verse 20. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. 
For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So Peter actually responds to Simon with what is probably the harshest criticism Peter ever levels in all of Scripture scripture toward a fellow believer. <laughs> like, the harshest criticism he ever levels another believer. And, uh, and, and it's, it's really intense that he says, may your, uh, may your money perish with you, which is a really interesting way of, of looking at it because your money will perish. And uh, if you think that what you have here on this earth, the renown that you gather, the wealth that you gather, the whatever that you gather here on this earth is worth anything, then it will perish with you. It's almost like a prophecy. Simon, if you do this, if this is who you are, if this is the, 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 the overall goal of why you're a part of the body of Christ, it's going to perish with you. It's going to happen. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. He says, you have no, you have, you have no purpose here to share in our ministry, what we're doing in the laying on of hands here, ministering to the Samaritans, because your heart is not right before God. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. And I read that, and I wonder how many of our churches Peter would get on stage and say the exact same thing. You have no part in this ministry because you're not doing it for the right reasons. Your heart is not right with God. May your money and your wealth and your renown and your likes on Instagram perish with you. It's impossible for us to know if, if Simon truly repented or not. It's impossible for us to know. We don't know for sure. We see that he had, I see that he had a, kind of a repentant heart. He said, pray for me, or pray to the Lord so that nothing you have said may happen to me. But the story kind of ends there. We don't know what happened with Simon, and we can't judge his heart. Even if we did know what happened, we don't know how his life turned out. I, I like to give Simon the benefit of the doubt. I like to say that, man, I really hope that, that, these, that, that verse 24 reveals a repentant heart that wanted to repent and draw closer to Jesus, but I don't know for sure. The only thing we can decide, the only thing we can know for sure is how to handle ourselves. The only thing we can know is where we are at with Jesus. Is this your heart? Is this something that you're struggling with? Is this, is this where you're at? Man, you need to repent. You need to come before God and say, man, I, I am doing this for the wrong reasons. And I need you. I need to do this for the right reasons. I need you to show me what you want me to do, why you want me to do it, and where you want me to do it. The final question is, will we leverage the kingdom for ourselves, or will we want to leverage ourselves for the kingdom? We were always meant to leverage what we had, the gifts and the talents that God gave us, the, the, the investment that he made in our lives. We were always meant to leverage that for the growth of the kingdom, and yet all too often I see the church and pastors even leveraging the kingdom for themselves. That's exactly what Simon wanted to do. Where are you at? Where's your heart? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to preach this word this morning. God, I thank you for Simon Magus, uh, even though he was a foolish man, uh, even though uh, he, was, he made the same mistake that many of us made, even though he was a new believer that hadn't quite grasped the concept of what the purpose of your kingdom is. God, I thank you that we have his story. God, I thank you for Peter's response that tells us we are meant to leverage ourselves for the kingdom and the reverse is sinful. God, I don't know what our scenarios are in this room. I don't know where each of us struggle or where our prejudices lie. I don't know where uh, we should be and, and where you want us to be, the places that we're rejecting. But God, I just pray that you would soften our hearts. Don't allow bitterness and anger and, and, and pain to, to let the enemy get a foothold in our lives. 
God, help us to be understanding and forgiving and patient. And when we get discouraged, help us to get our satisfaction from you. God, we want to have a part in this ministry. We don't want to do it for the wrong reasons. We want to do it for the right reasons. God, give us the courage and the strength and the patience to get our hands in and get dirty. To go to the places we've always considered unclean. And to shine your light in a dark, dark world. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of your church, part of your mission. Help us this week as we attempt to do that a little better. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Thank you.